FTGFOP is a acronym for T-grading, and it means Fancy Tippy Golden Finest Orange Pico, and it is the second to highest. The highest is Special Fancy Tippy Golden Finest Orange Pico, or SFTGFOP, usually appended with a number to indicate the uh, sequence in the harvest that the tea you are drinking is. So SFTGFOP1 would be the first flush harvest, which is considered the highest possible grade of single-state Darjeeling that you can possibly drink. I am currently drinking a TGFOP Earl Grey as I record this podcast episode. FTGFOP is also derisively referred to by the British as far too good for ordinary people. Make money online. Welcome to Make Money Online. I'm Kai Davis. Today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Nick DeSabado. Hi. Welcome to Tea Chat. Tea Chat. We're just going to spend the next half hour discussing various tea grades and why when you go to David's Tea, you make me want to kill you. Mm-hmm. I've, uh, I've actually, I just purchased some new tea the other day. It's a uh, it's small batch. It's local. It's uh, it's this, it's, it's delicious. It's lemon. It's uh, you might've heard, maybe you've heard of them. You're in the right circles. Lipton, I think is how it's pronounced. I know it hurt. God. The joke hurt. Kai, it's not it's not small batch guy <laughs> i have a small no my, my morning tea today was a blend of dark forest chai and a uh mint matcha with it, as a latte with rice milk and stevia and uh that's my go-to tea at townsend's tea a uh, uh actually a chain now of tea shops in the pacific northwest mostly or eugene oregon and bend or eugene portland and bend but uh that's been my go-to it's a uh, it's minty it's chai it's caffeinated and uh it tastes delicious so before this podcast got recorded i i went to my kitchen and i got out the earl gray and i you know Measured out six grams of it for the amount of water I put on the water. And really, I just stood there. I like checked my fingernails to see if there was any crud under them. And I like looked around and like wiped down the countertop because there was some scuzz on it and whatever have you. And then the water went off and I poured the tea and then I set the, the timer for three minutes and I just sat there. I didn't really do anything. I didn't look at any screens. I think I kept cleaning the kitchen a little bit, just kind of getting a little bit of work done. This is in the middle of like billable office hours, you know, this is the middle of the workday, right? So uh, I should be answering email or going on Slack and talking to my clients about why I think they're wrong and I need to improve their businesses and, and doing all these things. But I sat there for about maybe 10 minutes, it wasn't all that long, but it was 10 minutes making tea. I pulled myself out of the brain space of it. And I'm grateful that I was able to do that and not feel guilty about it. And I can in large part thank my assistant for that. I pulled a lot off my plate. And um, we've talked a lot about how a goal in, in solo business practice is to maximize your discretionary time. And I feel like going and and making tea just so I can have it and drink it is a form of discretionary time. And again, having the assistant was instrumental in that it took a little while for that to to come together uh kai you have an assistant right i i have a lovely assistant uh jesse we just had a meeting this morning and yeah and i get i can honestly say uh i have had wanted to hire an assistant for probably two two and a half years 
And hiring an assistant was the single scariest thing I felt I could do as a business owner. And suddenly I'm like, I'm paying somebody. I'm responsible for telling them what to do. Holy fuck. Anxiety crisis out the wang. And then I just didn't do it. And finally I decided, and we could get into the how of this later, but finally I decided to pull the trigger. I hired an assistant. And just like everything in life, it turned out to be less scary than I was telling myself it would be. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had done it sooner, man. And honestly, it was your help. You made a giant blog post that you listeners should absolutely read uh, about hiring an assistant and the whole process for that. I followed it almost wrote and asked you a handful of questions and then I did it. And it took like two weeks. That was it. And then I had an assistant and she's there and I was paying her and uh, then I had no idea what to do about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's been the same. I I can honestly say like once I got past – like really for a listener who's thinking about hiring an assistant or hiring an employee, let's equate them to be the same thing for the purpose of this discussion. There's there's a feeling that, okay, I'm going to hire somebody and everything's going to be that much easier. Well, I could say from personal experience and I think Nick will agree on this that – no, it actually, it's it's like the mythical man month problem. Like suddenly hiring somebody doesn't reduce the amount of work on your plate. What it's going to do is elevate the amount of work on your plate while you train the person how to do things, while you continue to do the things you were doing before. And then I generally think it's a two to three month window. After that two to three month process, they're at the point where suddenly they're able to uh, uh, take work off of your plate and you start recovering that time back. And we're at around six months together, Jesse and I, and we've really hit a stride where she's able to like take a point on projects, do an excellent, excellent, excellent job. And I don't worry or I don't stress. And it never was that I was worrying or stressing about her. It's just my anxiety being Jewish and my anxiety as a business owner and my anxiety at exploring something new, there was this fear of like, oh God, am I doing this right? It's taking time. Is it supposed to take time? But it does take time to get them up to speed. It does take time to get somebody else up to speed on like how your business runs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Two weeks into my work with my assistant, she asked me on the call, she's like, I just want to feel useful. And I was like, man, (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. I felt like it was absolutely my fault that this person was not feeling useful because I wasn't making them feel useful because I wasn't giving them enough work because I had no idea how to do it. So there's kind of two things here. There's doing the hiring, which is almost the easy part, and then doing the delegation once they've hired and make sure that you've built a routine around it that makes sense and is good for you and is good for them. And that is that is why we are recording this episode right now. Holy God. Delegating is hard. Delegating is the hardest skill I've had to practice as an adult and as a business owner. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very hard and it's a sign of maturity, right? So one of the like final fronts is when they're able to like take control of your email. And she has a separate email address that most of drafts email goes to at this point and then she just forwards me stuff. And being able to set up that system took like three weeks because it was constantly fine-tuning it. And it was it was very difficult, but it was so rewarding. Now I have a, a system where it's just like, okay, we're done here. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it felt really good. Yeah, that that's what I've noticed the most as I've... Uh, uh, 
gotten better at having an assistant is we're late, like it takes work, but we're laying down the framework for processes and procedures that will pay off down the line. And suddenly it's that much easier to implement something new because we're both speaking the same language. We're both ironing out the kinks of the process. Like just this past week, we, we were having a conversation like, hey, great for communication. Like, does it make sense for us to use Slack or Basecamp or Trello or something else? Where do projects live? How do we communicate? What's the best way for you to assign projects up to me so I can do the right thing? What's the best way for me to have an eye on what you're working on so I can make sure you're focused in the right areas? How do, how do you tell me when I'm doing a shitty job explaining what needs to happen or what projects need to be worked on next? And and it takes a lot of communication and it's hard work, but it really, really does pay off because suddenly you have somebody who understands the way you think, understands the way your business operates and has the necessary skills to execute on things for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was um, building the right system for it is really hard. So one thing that we did was we started making what were called standard operating procedures. And it's just, it's essentially a checklist. And, okay, well, do you want to queue something up for my mailing list? Here are all the steps you go through to do it. That's it. Take screenshots and do whatever is necessary to communicate the idea. And eventually we ended up with so many standard operating procedures that they were in so many different locations that I had to step back and be like, okay, your next task is to build a database of standard operating procedures. Build the master file of how, like, give me the keys to the Corolla, man. Like, that's that's what it is. And it's not, I think the optics of that look a little weird if, like, you know, I'm not preparing to fire you or anything or replace you. But, like, it does make you bus-proof, right? Like, if you got hit by a bus tomorrow, we would not be so dire that I wouldn't know how to go about doing these procedures. Um, so there's that. Um, but, you know... Okay, put together these SOPs, follow them at this periodicity, remind me about this at this time, do this, do this, do this. And it's just having like a vast, complex to-do list so I don't have to. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, that's one point. One thing, one thing I found really successful in the SOP is standard, generating standard operating procedures area is uh, originally the way we did it originally was like we'd sit down I'd illustrate the task and like I do a first draft of the SOP have her work through the SOP and like make changes or ping me back and it worked okay and it worked well and it made sure that we figured out like a standard operating procedure that covered a task what we ended up migrating to and what's worked really well over the last three months is if there's a task or a project or a piece of software that I want to train uh, Jesse on or train anyone on I just record a screencast using ScreenFlow of like, cool, I'm going to show you like a, how do you, uh, I use an outreach program called QuickMail. I'm going to show you how to add a new sequence to QuickMail. And I'll record a 15 minute screencast of like, these are the steps I go through. And so creating the SOP suddenly is, I do it and record the screencast and talk my way through it. I pass the screencast over as a video, upload it to Wistia or, or YouTube or wherever. And then Jesse is able to work through that video and say like, okay, cool. I'm making the SOP based on the steps you're working through. So she's able to rewind, scrub back, listen. And like, sometimes I'm like, okay, I just did something and it's wonky. Let me break down like why I did it. She's able to reference that video forever. And so not only, and so like if and when Jesse, you know, graduates to something else or is no longer my assistant and leaves her 
something, some other opportunity, we suddenly have this database of SOPs that are, here are the steps somebody could take to do this, and here's a reference video that explains how to do it. And it's been incredibly valuable where there's been times where I said, hey, Jesse, like, remember that thing, we, that project we worked on five months ago? And she's like, oh, yeah, totally. Let me dive back, watch the video. Okay, cool. I remember how to do it now. And it future-proofs ourselves against losing that knowledge. Since now, it's so easy for me to help, for me to start the process of creating an SOP. I record a video of me doing the thing. It's easier for her to learn how to do the thing because she gets to watch a video that illustrates the process. She's learning how to do it while she's not so much transcribing, but breaking down the steps. And then we now have this asset of like, here's a training video and the associated steps. Whenever either one of us needs to do it, great, we have it broken down one through X. And we also have a video to reference if we don't understand one specific part of the process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What I'm hearing here is you're trying to build a culture and a routine, really, of constantly improving and optimizing the procedures. There's always mm -hmm. areas to identify where you can try and pull more stuff off of Kai's plate, refine the kind of stuff that's on your assistant's plate, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And build it. It's almost like a meta routine to like refine the routine. But mm -hmm. it's so valuable and important to be having that with an assistant. Mm -hmm. And I could say... Uh, this the topic for this episode comes from I'm going to butcher your name I'm so sorry Josh Josh uh, Garofalo mm. Sway Copy on Twitter uh, he asked uh, an experience on our use of VAs and assistants and uh, we've been talking about assistants for a bit my first real experience working with an assistant was when I hired Jesse before that I heavily used a service called Fancy Hands fancyhands.com it's a american based virtual assistant service and I, I used that from probably 2012 through 2014, and it was wonderful just to get me in the habit of like delegating small projects or figuring out how I break down the scope of something, do something small and manageable. I uh, I wrote a uh, I don't want to call it crappy. I wrote my first ebook on how I use the service. I'll link to it in the show notes for people if they want to check out uh, Kai's first ebook. But I use the service heavily, like when I went to Spain, because I was able to email the service and be like, "Hey, I'm in Barcelona." Uh, I have two days. Can you send me back a list of six vegan restaurants? And just using a service like a virtual assistant like that trained me into thinking like, okay, I want to ask a specific question. I want to set out uh, uh, what the outcome I'm looking for is. I want to give the constraints. I want to give an idea of the time frame. Like, obviously, if this, if this is a task like, hey, I'm in Barcelona for four hours. Can you send me back a list of, a restaurant, uh, of restaurants in the next 15 minutes? That's much different than I'm here for the next two weeks. Give me a list of restaurants. But it, it taught me how to be better at delegating. And uh, our, our friend Marcus Blankenship has a delegation checklist that we'll link to in the show notes here that just is really great for figuring out how you delegate a project to somebody, specifying the scope, the time frame, the outcome you're looking for, uh, making sure to ask if they have any questions and just breaking it down into a repeatable process for delegating a thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's all really valuable. There's one thing I want to seize on that you said kind of in the middle there where you were talking about the vegan restaurants in Barcelona. And, and some of you are probably thinking, like, why doesn't Siri do that? And <laughs> Uh, right. <laughs> you know where this is going. The answer is that there's a lot of technology that will automate things for you. So I have Calendly, which um, automates my calendar appointments. And I have, you know, um, a lot of like automated email filters. And I have Siri. I have I Apple stuff, you know, so that's all. None of it is off the table. You have things that can answer questions for you. But like, 
Siri is a robot that hands you back data and then it's still on you to analyze the data. If your assistant knows you well enough and you can give them restaurants and know like that they're going to be vetted and good, you don't have to have that cognitive overhead. You just show up at the restaurant. The same with calendaring. Hit Nick D, here's your schedule today. Now your Apple Watch can do that for you. But your assistant, there's still a mismatch, I feel, between what a human can do, uh, especially a human who gets you. Your phone will never get you. Um, Might try. We might, you know, get to Skynet in the next five years. But as of this recording in the beginning of 2016, your assistant will get you better and Those are the kind of tasks I feel like I would offload towards the end where I'd be like, find someplace dope for me in Melbourne to go and have coffee. Okay, well, what does dope mean? Where in Melbourne? Melbourne is 4 million people. Like, what neighborhood are you going to be in? Um, What kind of coffee do you care about? Do you care about Starbucks? Do you care about espresso? Do you care about pour over? Do you care about single estate? Do you care about, like, you know, barista interaction? Do you want to learn something? Like, there are a million. This is a coffee shop. Do you want it to be a weird hippie coffee shop or do you want it to be a fancy Scandinavian minimalist coffee shop? Like what? And I know that sounds preposterous, but you're managing, you're putting the the management of your own experience and the like instinct you would have walking past a coffee shop out of your hands. So you need to make sure they're not going to screw it up. Um, and that is that is a sacred trust. That is very difficult. You're already giving them access to a million things. My assistant has access to like my bank accounts and like a lot of my transactional history and just like personal stuff that is very, very sensitive and private that I would not show to really most people. Um, and I think you need to make sure you're being cognizant of that and building a culture where they can really understand who you are as a person and what you want out of not just your job, but out of your life. Otherwise, you're going to end up you know, meeting clients at McDonald's or having business lunches in douche places. And like, I just scheduled a dinner with a client at the Publican in two weeks, which is one of my favorite restaurants in the city of Chicago, and I could not be more thrilled about it. But my assistant wouldn't know, you know, unless I told her, the Publican equals dope. <laughs> Find me a dope place. Therefore, the Publican. Quadrat demonstrandum. <laughs> Yeah, which I think connects back to the idea of there's that three-month onboarding time for an assistant or an employee where they're learning to – you're both learning to think the way they think and communicate the way they communicate, and they're learning to think the way you think and communicate the way you communicate. Just like when you – so now I'm sure if you say, like, I need a dope place for, you know, a meeting with a couple friends, your assistant – is trained well enough in how you think and communicate to know like, okay, cool. So this is the type of thing he's looking for. Here are three suggestions we can move forward. Where if on day one, you're like, give me a dope place to uh, take a client for dinner, they'll be like, okay, great, uh, dope. Uh, the medical marijuana dispensary, that'll be a dope place. And you're like, ah, no, what? Uh, communication. Why it, not it, go to the medical <laughs> marijuana dispensary then? Um, yeah, no, there's there's a lot there. That's that's really, really important. Um, getting that that upfront thing. So what happened was the person who asked this, this was actually, uh, this episode topic was a uh, listener request. And if you are listening, email us at the email on makemoneyonline.exposed and we make episodes based on what you're asking. This is the second time we've done this out of what, like a dozen episodes. So uh, please, please, please reach out to us. He did not ask specifically for assistance. He asked about VAs. VAs are a little bit different. Where does your assistant live? 
Uh, Eugene, Oregon. We uh, we have a meeting once a week at uh, Townsend's Tea House, my favorite tea house. And uh, But no, she lives like a 10-minute drive from my house, maybe a 15-minute drive. Yeah, my assistant lives in Edgewater, and I live in Logan Square, which are about eh, 25, 30 minutes apart in Chicago. Mm-hmm. They're about eight miles apart. You can take the red line of the 74, super easy. Um, so yeah, we deliberately chose assistance in our jurisdictions. Uh, part of that for me, I don't know about Kai, but part of it for me is so I can meet this person in person if I need to, but also for uh, tax nexus reasons. Um, I don't have to charge sales tax anywhere that's not Illinois, so I don't want to hire people in Illinois. Um, I don't want people with physical mailing addresses in Illinois, so I don't have to expose myself. Uh, so there's definitely that aspect of it. And as a result of this, I have an assistant that is, you know, she works remote most of the time, maybe about 90, 95% of the time. She's not really a virtual assistant. You know, I can get her on Skype. It's not somebody that just like sits behind a SaaS business. Uh, there are a lot of like assistant as a service businesses. What happens if you get passed on to another assistant? Like that one quits. I don't know about you, but all of the procedures we just spent, what, 20 minutes talking about would go straight out the window. And I don't know how to build that framework back up while assuming, oh, this person will come in for five minutes. How does someone get you in five minutes? I'm a very complex person, Kai. (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Drink some more of this tea. I'm okay now. (laughs) <laughs> but you're absolutely right. When you have that transition, like, I mean, like that was that was one of the issues I faced when I used the service fancy hands. Like, it was wonderful for one-off tasks, but I couldn't build a relationship, or it was very hard to build a relationship working with the same person, since there's, you know, a bank of people behind that SaaS, and they pick and choose tasks based on their ability. So I might, like send in research projects and it's always the same person picking those projects up because they're good at research, but there's no relationship building of one particular person. There are services that do match you up with a VA, but the issue, just like you pointed out, is like, okay, when they quit, what do you do then? And that's hard. And like, I think that's a challenge we face even when you hire an assistant that you're working with face-to-face or an employee that you work with face-to-face. Like, There's always a risk of that person quitting, but like we pointed out earlier, we spend a lot of our time building up these SOPs, not to insulate ourselves against an employee or an assistant quitting, but to make our jobs and their jobs easier. But a side benefit is if there is that type of transition, well, we have a knowledge base, we have information and like we could even frame it as uh, uh Suddenly, if I decide to hire a second employee or a second assistant, well, we don't have to start from zero. It's like, okay, cool. We've built up this library of information. Here you are. We want you to help with outreach. Here is our Bible on how to do outreach. Please read this and then we'll answer questions. Like we've insulated ourselves against the difficulty of hiring new employees by building up this library. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There's, um, I don't understand why anyone would balk against trying to make your job easier, you know? What would the alternative be? Oh, let's not write down that SOP. Let's make it more cumbersome. That's someone who's destroying your organization from the inside. Mm -hmm. Reconsider. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Um, dun, dun, dun. There are a couple other questions that people ask that I'd love us to move through. Uh, I'll, I'll just ask them and we could both answer. So when you were hiring, how did you vet your candidates? Uh, I stole your process. Kai, what was your process for vetting <laughs> candidates? So, so uh, we'll, we link to this in the show notes. I set up a, I actually advertised on Craigslist for my assistant and uh, I had them email me in and uh, I responded, I reviewed the, I said like, hey, email in, answer these questions, tell me a bit about yourself, link to something interesting. And from there, if somebody was interesting, I'd respond back and say like, okay, cool. The next step is to book a time, you know, pick a time on my Calendly and we'll meet face to face. We did a face to face meeting. I wanted to, really, it was like a human test. Like, can we communicate well? Are we both interesting people? Do we jive well together? And I said, bring some questions for me. I'll bring some questions for you. From there, I said, cool, I have a standardized paid test project that I'd like us to do together. I'll send you a link after this meeting. It was a Google Doc, and it was three different phases. And I think in my case, it was like a research thing, find some bloggers. Uh, uh, another research thing, find their contact information. And a third thing, write an outreach email to promote a hypothetical product. Since a lot of what I do is digital public relations and outreach, I wanted to see, A, how well they could follow instructions and B, how well they could think on their feet and me give them like an abstract, like here's the outcome I'm looking for, do this thing and show me the results of this thing. And I use that to vet the different candidates. Giving, I think, I, I let me rephrase this. I will never hire somebody without giving them a paid test project first because it shows that I have skin in the game and I value their time. And it also motivates them to do a good job because like, hey, I'm paying you for this thing. Like good job or bad job, you're gonna get paid for this. I'd much rather you feel well compensated for your time and not doing work on spec to potentially get a, a position as an employee or an assistant or somebody within the organization. So yeah. that's my big rambly answer about how I vetted people. Giving them a paid test project and having a face-to-face meeting yeah absolutely i uh i will add one thing about the initial application vetting process otherwise mine was identical to kai's i will find every reason imaginable to reject your application once it has been posted to craigslist every reason imaginable did you fuck up a comma i'm so sorry (laughs) i'm serious I'm serious. If you have like like minor spelling errors or comma errors or anything, because I got over 500 applications and I have to find one. So you have to be perfect. Proofread your email. Uh, tell me you knew something about my business and actually did some work. If you talk about, if you mention draft in the email, you're ahead of 80% of candidates. If you tell me that draft does interaction design, you're ahead of 90% of candidates. And if you call me Nick, you're ahead of 95% of candidates. And if you mention some personal detail from my bio, you are in the top three candidates. If you Google Nick DeSabato biography, you will find what my favorite beer is, You will find what my ethnicity is. You will find how much I love Asian food. The answer is a lot. (laughs) And you will know what my favorite restaurants in the city is. And you're presumably also from Chicago in this situation. So be like, I might have seen you at Lula Cafe sometime soon. My God, you're in the top three candidates. Mm -hmm. Because you just mentioned the place that catered my wedding. Like you're done. (laughs) <laughs> Nick, I was at your wedding. Great, you're hired. Thank you so much. Uh, no. Uh, uh, 
don't hire friends. No. Oh, yeah. I guess I guess that segues nicely into the next question: when to hire and when not to hire. And I'd strongly say, don't hire friends. Don't and hire friends. I, I I put a caveat on like occasionally subcontract with friends. Since like I do that, I have a couple friends where uh, you use this reference or this language once on a landing page of yours. Uh, you're an independent business, but occasionally you'll pull together like the uh, superhero team up of consultants to help with larger projects. I do the same. Like if I have a design thing, I've, I have a buddy who's a great designer and I'll be like, hey, buddy, you, do you have some time? Would you like a project? Here's the spec. Here's the scope. And so I'll do one-off projects or small retainer-based projects, but I wouldn't hire a friend just because suddenly you have to make the decision on which this person is. Are they more a friend who is also an employee or are they more an employee who's also a friend? And that could fuck up relationships hard. Yeah, yeah. I do, uh, for example, I did a project with my friend Margot where we were just redesigning uh, the front page of a website uh, for one of my draft revised clients. Went great. She redesigned it. Looked good. I enjoyed it. The end. Um, would I hire Margot as a full-time designer? No. I love Marco. She's one of the most like talented and wonderful and kind human beings that I personally know. She's probably listening to this episode and getting all verklempt about it. I fed her lunch yesterday, but I still like I don't building friendships. It is such a precious and fragile thing. And if you hire them, you risk fucking that up. It is never worth it. It is never worth it. One of the people that I'm not going to mention their name, uh, but they're, you know them, Kai, I know them, and they are one of the most like f respected people in my life and my career and one of my favorite people. And they have to fire a friend this week. And they, they hired this friend for their business and came to me a few days ago saying that they regretted that decision. And I feel horrible for them. I, I really do, but like, don't hire friends. You have to cast a wider net than that. And that helps keep it professional and workmanlike. Otherwise, you've already exceeded a certain boundary there, and, and there's no way to wind that back. So that's a nice way to end this episode. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> get an assistant, do it professionally. And it's going to take three months where you feel like you're wasting a lot of time and money and effort on it. And then it's going to start hitting well and pay off really well. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it, it takes time. You might not get right, get it right the first time. Like uh, one, I guess I'd like to end on this thought. When I went into the process of hiring an assistant, I went into it saying, I am willing to risk, let's say a thousand dollars a month for three months for it to work out incredibly poorly, but me to learn so much as a business owner on what to do right the next time. And it's worked out wonderfully, but I went into it with that mindset of, I'm okay with this not working out because I am paying for the education and the knowledge and to improve my processes and improve my communication. And I think if you adapt or adopt that mindset, that will put you in the best position to hire, to delegate, to explore what it means to have an assistant that you could trust and rely on because you have to go into it eyes wide open and say like, you know, it might not work out. It might go poorly and that's okay. That's just part of the process. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's a good way to end. I just finished my tea. It was far too good for ordinary people and I felt <laughs> it was delicious. I felt really good about it. 
And uh, uh, just a reminder, if you have not yet backed Nick's project on Kickstarter, uh, link is in the show notes, go back it right now. If you have already backed Nick's project on Kickstarter, thank you so much. Back uh, it again. Go back, it, back it a second time. Uh, think of three friends, go email them, tell them they are no longer your friends unless they go back it right now. Uh, make some napalm, write draft evidence on your football field. Yes. Uh, really, any of the above options, preferably ones that involve backing the project, would be much appreciated. Anything that involves backing the project, because that results in me getting money to print the book. And mm-hmm. if that doesn't happen, then... I'm going to burn this place to the ground. That's mm-hmm. it. We had a good run. <laughs> it was a good it was a good 12 episodes of the podcast and uh, a good a good humanity. Oh no, I meant I'm going to burn my house to the ground. Oh, oh gosh. Just out of anger. You you have upstairs neighbors. I'm so sorry. Not anymore. Ah! <laughs> but yes, please back uh, Nick's project and thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much. <laughs>